Gospel of Mark. We're going to be in chapter 9 this morning, beginning in verse 14, and working our way through verse 28. You see behind me, Matthew and Luke also have this passage that we're going to be looking at this morning. Uh, It deals with right after the transfiguration of Jesus, as Jesus, Peter, James, and John are all coming down the mountain. And Matthew and Luke give us a little shorter detailed reading of this event. And it's almost verbatim, but Matthew does add a little tidbit to it that we'll look at as we walk through this passage. And over the last several years, uh, the Hurchin family has been blessed to go on vacation with Jamie's side of the family. And uh, we typically go down to Gulf Shores, Alabama. Uh, we uh, get to go there because her parents would rent a home and then all the family would go down. And uh, I typically loved that week but because of the week that I would not plan very much. <clears throat> Matter of fact, I would turn that planning part of my brain off as we go there. There's only two things I had to worry about. Uh, each family had to take two nights to cook supper for everyone else. And then the other thing I had to worry about is where's the good food? that we're going to go eat. I, I always want to eat at least twice, eat sufi, seafood while we're out there. The thing about vacation, I think we all know this, is that you can't stay there forever. Eventually, you're going to have to return, and I always find it entertaining as we're driving back home, and we usually do that in like one day, because once I get on the road heading home, I'm just like, let's just get there. You know, I want to sleep in my own bed tonight, and then we can just rest tomorrow from the long trip. Uh, but on the way back, about the 13, 14 hours that it takes to get back home, Jamie starts making noises. <clears throat> uh, she starts grunting. Uh, she starts breathing like exasperation. Uh, and then she'll typically say, it's, it's happening. There's no stopping it. Um, if you don't know, my wife is a teacher. She's very good at what she does. Um, she loves what she does. She puts her heart and soul into it. But as we edge closer and closer to home, because we typically go on vacation the very last week of July, uh, those noises just get louder and louder and louder. And she just, Ugh. she does like her job. Um, I know some people think being a teacher is Something would be awesome. You did a summer break every, every year. You only work nine months of the year. And married to a teacher, I can tell you that is not the case. Teachers typically put 13 months of work into nine. And during summer break, they, even though they're off and they're able to do a few things that they typically enjoy, a lot of times teachers during that time are doing conferences. They're uh, doing research. They're learning new tactics on how to be better at what God has called them to do. But the reality of summer coming to a close brings to my wife's mind, uh, she's going to have a new group of students, which is always nice to get to know them, but also she's going to have a new set of parents that she's going to have to work with or work around or try to please. And so it typically hits my wife at the very end of July, and if you're a teacher, you know this, that that's when they send out the roster of the classroom. And so the kids and the parents know what teacher they're going to have, and it starts erupting on Facebook, hey, my kid's got this, my kid's got that, my kid's got this, and She doesn't necessarily dread returning to the classroom, but the thought of the return means it's back to reality. It means it's less time that she can do what she enjoys doing and reading books. It's less time being able to go for walks in the evening with the family or just with me. And I share this because in our passage this morning, Jesus and these three disciples who went up the mountain are now going to be returning to the rat race of ministry 
And the return is a lot like ours when we have to return to the everyday. So let's read our passage and then we'll walk through this. Beginning in verse 14 of the Gospel of Mark, the word of the Lord says, And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, What are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth, and he becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him, and the spirit saw him. Immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. He's often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if, I, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father and the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. After crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse. So most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him up, and he arose. And we had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you, Lord, that you are for us, not against us. We thank you, Lord, that you have declared us your children. You have declared us heirs to your kingdom if Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior. We thank you for the forgiveness we have found in your Son. We thank you for the gift of the Spirit that you've given all of those who believe. Father, as we come into your word and we open it up, we ask your spirit just to open it up to us so we might understand it, how it impacts it, what the implications are for our life. Lord, we pray that you alone would be glorified, not just by the preaching of your word, but by the response to your word. I thank you for what's going to happen here this morning. We thank you that we are in your presence by the promises you've given us. And Lord, I, just, I, I pray that you continue to be glorified in everything that is said and done in this place and prepare our hearts in this moment right now, Lord, that we would be receptive to what we need to hear. Thank you again for this place, for these people. And we pray this all in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. As I already mentioned, this event, you can see if you look earlier in chapter 9 of Mark, is directly tied to the transfiguration, which all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, tie this event to that event and what happened there. So when we read there in verse 14, and when they came to the disciples, it's to give us that reminder that Jesus, Peter, James, and John were up on the mountain previously. 
And the three disciples were up there and they saw Jesus transfigured. They saw him talking with Moses and the prophet Elijah. In the midst of all of that, Peter begins to pipe up. And he says, you know what? This is good that we're here. And I can build some tents for you three. And he wanted to stay in that moment. He wanted to stay on top of the mountain. And I imagine as Peter doesn't say anything here, but as he comes down, the type of individual scripture allows us to get to know who he was. I imagine he's coming down the mountain and he's seeing this argument that is going on with the other nine disciples. I imagine his thought is this, I knew we should have stayed up there. I knew we shouldn't have come down here. We didn't know last week what was transpiring at the bottom of the mountain with the nine disciples, but this morning in our passage, we're given a few more details as Jesus and his disciples are coming down from this holy mountaintop experience. The other nine were not only dealing with a crowd of people, but they were dealing with a a father whose son was possessed by a demon. They were dealing with the scribes. Scribes were the teachers of the law frequently in the gospels. They're viewed as the antagonists of Jesus's ministry. Situation was none of the nine at the bottom of the mountain were able to cast out this demon, demon which was causing the scribes to build an argument against them. We're not told what the argument was necessarily about. We don't exactly know what they were saying. But it's most likely they're questioning the legitimacy of Jesus' authority and his ministry. And they're questioning his disciples' uh, ability. They had seen Jesus cast out demons before. They had seen him do miracles. They had seen him do healings. But if he was, in fact, a teacher or a rabbi, as the disciples viewed him as, then he was a very poor teacher because his disciples should have been able to do the same things that he was able to do if they were, in fact, learning from him. So Jesus and three disciples, they have this huge moment on the mountain. They've seen the glory of God radiating from his son. They had seen Moses and Elijah. They heard the voice of God speak from a cloud, declaring that Jesus was his son and giving them instructions that they were to listen to him. They had experienced things that their ancestors of the Old Testament had experienced, that they were in the presence of God. They'd seen the lawgiver Moses. They'd seen the prophet Elijah, who was the first prophet to emerge when Israel split into the northern and southern kingdoms, they'd been able to get away from the chaos, been able to get away from the crowds and the argument of religious leaders. And they just had this mountaintop experience with God and with Jesus, but they had to come down, which we all have to. We all have to in returning to life. You know, we all get these moments in time where we can break away from life. You know, some of us, it's going to a movie or just watching a movie at home. For some of y'all, maybe finding your favorite fishing spot, going camping, riding on the boat, across the lake. Some of y'all, it's you go out into the woods and you sit in a deer stand and you just break away. It might be on vacation. It might be later today you get your good Sunday nap. It might be your morning coffee as you sit there in the morning and read your Bible and you're just preparing your heart and your mind and your soul for whatever God has planned for you for the rest of the day. 
Now, these are all good things, and we are called to Sabbath, to rest, to break away, and these are what those things do. They give us rest. They restore our soul. You know, our students here in the next week are going to get a chance to break away from their everyday life, to break away from the chaos that may be going on as they go off to camp, and here's the thing, they're going to have to return. You know, one thing that came out of COVID, or the year of COVID, the year of lockdown, is our family found out that we like to go out for hikes. We like to walk in God's creation and just take it in. And one of my favorite places to go, and don't take this wrong, but my favorite place to go is along the Buffalo River in Arkansas. And one reason I like to go there is because there's tons of hikes and it's a beautiful area, but there's no cell service. So my phone isn't giving me notifications every other minute. I can't get phone calls or text messages because the hand of God is protecting my cell phone at that moment, enabling not be able to call out or anybody to call in. And so we get away so we can restore our minds, we can store our hearts, we can store our souls. And if you're not doing that, you need to do that or you're going to burn out. But the reality is you're going to have to return to life. You're going to have to return to what you have to go through every single day, at your job or with your family. And Jesus and these three disciples, they return, they walk right into an argument. The amazement of the crowds in verse 15 is probably because they didn't know where Jesus was at that moment in time. Maybe the disciple says, well, he's not to be bothered. We don't know that. But I imagine they're amazed too, and they looked at Jesus because they're wondering, how is he going to handle this? Because these nine disciples aren't really handling it very well. So how is he going to handle this situation? The event is very similar to what happened in the Old Testament with Moses in the book of Exodus. After Moses and Joshua went up the mountain, and Joshua was only permitted to go so far, he was a faithful servant to Moses. Moses goes up to Mount, the peak of Mount Sinai. And he meets God face to face. He receives the law and he receives instructions. It's the exciting part of the book of Exodus where you come into the Ten Commandments and then the tabernacle and the priestly garments. Well, eventually Moses had to come down the mountain. And it happened about 40 days he's up on this mountain having this communion with God. He had broken away from the people after leading them to this place. And he begins coming down the mountain, and he and Joshua, as they're coming down the mountain, they hear a commotion that is happening within the camp of Israel. And many of us might be familiar with the story. It takes place in Exodus chapter 32. The noise was so loud that Joshua described it as a noise of war in the camp. Meaning there was this lot of commotion, because what had happened is Aaron had decided that he's going to take the gold that Israel had just plundered from Egypt, and he's going to throw it into the fire, and voila, out came a golden calf. And so he tells the nation of Israel, this is the God you shall serve, this is the God you shall worship, this is the God who has liberated you and brought you to this place. Now Moses just had this encounter with God. Face to face, he's carrying tablets, which scripture tells us were literally written by the finger of God. And he comes down this mountain, and he sees what's happening and what's going on. And he comes to these people who are now committing adultery and idolatry. And so Moses gets so upset, he throws the tablets down and they shatter. Probably a response he wished he could have redone, right? Right? 
But he goes into the camp. He begins cleansing the camp of the unrighteousness that has been taking place. And then he goes back up the mountain because he has to get the law and the tablets back. But this time, he's got it right. But he just has this new experience. And here's the thing. Throughout Scripture, this is what we see happening to God's people. Jacob was finally released from working for his father-in-law Laban. He had an encounter with God, which led to this strange little wrestling match, which occurred. God changes his name to Israel at that moment. And then the next day he wakes up and he hears that his brother Esau is on his way to see him. And so after he has this amazing encounter with God, what happens? He comes back to life and fear overtakes his heart. Joseph receives a vision from God in a dream to only have his brothers want to kill him and eventually sell him into slavery. We already talked about Moses, Joshua. He spoke with God before he led the Israelites to go and take this town of Jericho in which they had to march around the town. He spoke with God, which was a Christophany in the Old Testament, of Jesus Christ coming to give him instructions, reminding him to be strong and courageous. And they have this incredible victory where all they do is walk around the city, right? The very next thing that happens after this incredible encounter, this incredible hand of God upon them, is the people of Israel decide they're going to take some of the stuff which would be devoted to destruction, which leads the Israelites to have their first defeat within the promised land. David is anointed by God by his prophet Samuel. to only be hunted by King Saul for the first part of his life. Prophet Elijah had an encounter with God on Mount Horeb, and when he returned back to life, he was hunted by the reigning king and Jezebel. Jesus and John the Baptist had this encounter with God. When Jesus was baptized, he comes out of the water and a voice from heaven speaks, This is my beloved Son, who I am and well pleased. And we know John heard it too. He witnessed the voice. What's the very next thing that happened after this encounter? Jesus is led into the wilderness to be tempted for 40, to be tempted. And John, he eventually gets arrested. He begins to question Jesus' identity, and eventually he is beheaded. The point of this is we see this pattern throughout Scripture, is that the moments that we have with God, those mountaintop experiences that are meant to prepare us in coming back to the everyday life. We return back to the everyday grind, because in the everyday life, those moments that we've had are going to be tested And so we have to rely on those experiences so we can persevere and endure in the faith. They're beneficial to us in that moment. They awaken us in that moment, make us feel alive and feel the presence and hear the voice of God. But they're given to us to strengthen us for the moments to come. As Jesus and the three return, Jesus answers Carrie Underwood's song, doesn't she, Denny? Jesus took the wheel. He takes control of the situation by assessing what is happening, what is taking place. You also have to notice that when Jesus shows up, the scribes kind of disappear. I don't know if they just went into the crowd, tried to blend in. We don't know whether they left or not. So as Jesus is assessing the situation... The father in the crowd speaks out. 
And we learn what has been happening while Jesus and the three disciples were up on the mountain. The father has brought his son, who is possessed by a demon, to the other nine disciples in order for the demon to be cast out. But the problem emerges that the nine who were at the foot of the mountain were unable to cast the demon out. And so Jesus' response in verse 19, it seems kind of harsh. Oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? And then he says, bring him to me. Now, the reading isn't clear who exactly Jesus is addressing in this moment. The statement is very reminiscent of what God spoke to his people in the Old Testament. In Psalm 95, we read, for 40 years, I loathed that generation. And said, they are people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Now, it's very unlikely that Jesus is addressing his disciples in this moment. Anytime he says, oh, faithless generation, it's typically directed to religious leaders like the scribes or to the crowds. But we do know that the disciples also rest with their faith at times. Yet the statement about being a faithless generation, what Jesus is reminding the crowds and reminding us today is returning to the foundation. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we're given three foundations, faith, hope, and love. And Paul is led to tell us that love is the greatest of all these things. And in this encounter, as Jesus comes down the mountain, Jesus is dealing with a lack of faith. That's why he calls them a faithless generation. A lack of faith means a lack of trust, and a lack of trust points to one questioning the love of God. And once we question the love of God, we begin to lose hope. The Bible says love is the greatest. Let's first deal with faith. The Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 9, without faith, it is impossible to please him, speaking of God. Now, the simplest definition of faith that I can give you is the word trust. And the easiest illustration I can give you about faith and trust is in the chair you are sitting in in this very moment. When you walked in this room to find your selected seats, you sat down in that chair Even though at times you've either seen videos, you've seen people, or yourself have sat in a chair and just given out on you. But you had a moment of trust, a moment of faith that when you sat in that seat, it was going to hold you up. And so when it comes to faith, it is trusting that we can put our full being into the promises of God. Just like you put your full being, your full weight onto that chair, we trust him. And so this crowd and these scribes were not trusting the full authority and the power of Jesus and those closest to him because they were not able to cast out the demon. Now the other foundation we're giving out of 1 Corinthians is directly tied to faith. We put our faith in God and his promises, which forms our hope that nothing is impossible with God. And Jesus points this out in verse 23, the possibility or hope of God moving or answering a prayer is directly tied to our faith and our believing. We believe that, yes, God can do this if it is his will. If it, it, it is a faith which says, yes, I do believe God can cure an individual of cancer. I do believe that God can open a door to a new job. I do believe that God can provide for this specific need. 
I do believe that God can change an individual's heart. I do believe, as I did in the past, that God could move on the heart of Jamie, that she would actually want to be around me, eventually want to date me, and then marry me. And he did. Faith. Hope. Now, it says love is the greatest because it is the love which empowers our faith and our hope. It begins with an understanding, as we sang in these songs, that God loves us. And we find assurance in that love because no matter what comes in life, nothing can separate us from the love of God, and nothing will limit God's love for us. And so we have a faith in that, and we have a hope in that. And so that moves us to love God more and also to love people, which we're commanded to do. God loves us, therefore we can love God, which gives us a faith in God, and a hope in God's promises found in his scripture, particularly the one that at some point in time, God is going to send his son, Jesus Christ, back to this earth to take us to our eternal home. If we have a faith, hope, and love in Jesus Christ alone. Now, Jesus has been laying these foundations. Paul didn't make this up. The Spirit spoke to Paul to write that in 1 Corinthians. But Jesus has been laying these foundations with his disciples. And these are the teachings he's been giving to the crowds. These are the things he's been trying to open the eyes of the scribes and religious leaders to. Yet, in this particular instance, because things weren't going the way they thought they should go, all three parties are questioning it. Can we really have a faith in this man? Should we really put our hope in this man? Should we really love him Enough to follow him. And so Jesus assesses this situation, and he's not asking these questions. We have to keep this in mind. He's a, he is God in the flesh. So he's not asking these questions because he doesn't know. He's fully aware of what's been going on with the boy. He's fully aware of how long it's been going on. He's not taken by surprise about this situation. But what he's doing through the questions is he's trying to build the faith of the father and the disciples to where they need to be to handle the situation. The thing is, the father, he had a faith that something could be done. If he did not have a faith that something could be done, he would not have brought his son to Jesus in the first place. But he's also, in this faith that he has, he's wrestling in his faith. I think we can all relate to him when he says, I believe, there in verse 24, but help my unbelief. In that moment, the father is declaring his faith, and in the same moment, telling Jesus, but I'm wrestling in the faith in this moment. I believe, but help my unbelief. I think we can all relate to those moments where we believe, we have a faith, but at the same time, we're wrestling and we're struggling to see what God is going to do in the midst of this situation. Those moments where we have a lack of understanding and we're wondering, where is God in all of this? There's moments when we're crying out to God to do something and we say, God, I believe. God, I trust you. God, I know you love me. God, I know you are good. But help me see what I'm not seeing. Help me understand what I'm not understanding. 
Lord, help me find a peace in the midst of all this turmoil and uncertainty. I believe, but help my unbelief in this moment. And appear after the Father makes this declaration of where he is. It's at this moment that Jesus takes the Father and the Son aside. And we've seen this in Scripture. Jesus is known to do this frequently, where he takes an individual aside, away from the crowds, away from the extravagant things, away from being an entertainment to people. And the reason we can know this is because in verse 25 it says, the crowd came running together, and that's when Jesus rebuked the Spirit. That's when he casts out the demon. The exorcism was so violent that the boy was presumed dead. Did you catch that? It was so violent that the boy was presumed dead. Now, of course, that's not the case. I mean, if that was the case, then it wouldn't have been a good thing to bring the boy to Jesus. It had been better for him to at least be alive. But it's a reminder for us all that just because Jesus comes into our life, just because God moves, just because the Holy Spirit empowers us, It doesn't mean everything is going to go as we thought it should go. The reality is even though God loves us, his love is meant to disrupt us. It's meant to change us and transform us. And so sometimes it can be painful. Sometimes it stretches us. But what we see here in the Gospels is the devastation that this demon was delivering to this child. The demon overpowered him and overwhelmed him to the point of exhaustion. The demon's goal was Satan's goal. He wanted to kill the boy. Mark says he wants to destroy him. Matthew says the demon wanted to shatter him. Matthew and Mark both point out that the demon would throw this boy in the fire to burn him alive. And then he would throw him in the water and attempt to drown him. And what the demon was revealing is this is Satan's plan. Satan's only goals are to kill, steal, and destroy. And Satan wants to do that to all people because all people are made in the image of God. But this is why Jesus has come. He's come to restore lives, save lives, and give life. Well, after the event ends... Verse 28, Jesus takes his disciples aside privately. And he's doing this because this is now the moment for the lesson for them. Something that they had not grasped. And we can assume the question of the disciples in verse 28, why could we not cast it out? We can assume that came from the nine who had been dealing with the situation the whole time. But I imagine the other three are wondering the same thing. Why could we not cast out the demon? We have to keep in mind it didn't, hadn't been too long ago that Jesus had sent his disciples out for the first time with the very instruction to preach the word of God and to cast out demons. And when they came back to Jesus, they shared about all the things they had done and all the things they had experienced. And so Jesus' lesson is very simple. He tells them, verse 29, this kind... This kind cannot be driven out by anything 
but prayer. And you know what prayer is relying upon? Faith. Matthew adds to this passage, another part of Jesus' teaching is to his disciples in private. He says, because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible to you. And the point is returning to reliance. I think the disciples assessed this situation. They looked at what was going on. The father brings the son, and I think they would have been like us. Well, we've done it before. Why can't we do it again? So the lesson Jesus brings out as he takes his disciples aside is to say that they need to turn to prayer, which was relying upon faith, which was the rebuke he had given earlier. He was not telling his disciples that they were incapable of casting out the demon. He was telling them they were incapable of doing it under their own power. Disciples were relying on what they had done in the past. They were relying on their experiences, and in doing so, they failed to rely on God. They failed to turn to him to do what only he can do. They were plugged into themselves and not into the power of God. That's why Jesus says prayer and faith. They're full of themselves, which means they had no room for God. So he says, it's by the power of prayer. It's by the power of faith. You know, as believers, we can all fall into this trap. Maybe you're here and you've you've taught a Bible study before. Whether it's been for kids or students or adults. And so when an opportunity emerges, you think, well, yeah, I can do that. I've done that before. I can just pull something out, roll with it. But if we don't pray about it, we don't allow our faith to drive it, there's not going to be any power there. Maybe you volunteered in ministry because it's something you've done before, something you do almost every day. So you think, well, that's not a very big deal. But reality is if we don't pray about it, we don't allow our faith to drive it, it's not going to go as well as it could. Because we're not relying on God, we're relying upon ourselves. When it comes to leading worship, if we're not praying about it, if we're not allowing our faith to drive it, because I've done that before, I've sang this before, is it really worship or is it just singing? Now, I'm happy to tell you, some of y'all don't know this, but our worship team, every Sunday gets here over two hours before we gather in this place. And they share what God's doing in their life. They share prayer concerns, and then they pray, and then they allow God to lead it. As a pastor, obviously, I I preach at least once a week, teach sometimes more than that. But if I don't pray about it and put my faith in the words that God is giving me, in the words that he has already spoken in his Bible, then there's not going to be any power in it. Faith and prayer. Returning to reliance on everything we do. Every aspect of our life. 
is to be reliant upon the power of God through faith and prayer. From our parenting, to our marriage, to our jobs, our finances, students, to your academics and extracurricular activities. If it's not driven by faith and prayer, you're just kind of there. Because when we rely on the power of God instead of our abilities or our past experiences or what we think we can do, we're going to witness what Jesus told this father in verse 23. All things are possible for one who believes. What an incredible promise. One thing which is impossible, though, without belief and faith and trust in Jesus is salvation. But God made it possible through his only son. This is why we call it the good news and the gospel. If you're here this morning, you need to know that God created you for a relationship with him. He loves you. He adores you. And he knows you completely. But sin separates us from that relationship. And we can't do enough good things to remove our sin problem. That's why it's relying upon faith and trust and hope and the love of God. Because God sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to live a perfect life according to his standards and his law, a life that we could not live so that Jesus Christ could ultimately die on a cross for our sins, take our punishment, and they placed him in a tomb, but he rose three days later. And the Bible says if we place our faith in that, and that alone, we will be saved. Christ alone. If you're here this morning and you've yet to confess Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I'm going to be standing down here. I'm going to invite you to just come down the aisle and say, Pastor Mike, I need to be saved. We'll pray together and we'll celebrate together. Maybe you're going through the everyday of life and you need to find a place to break away and find that reliance upon God. Let him restore you and give you peace and rest and strength. Let's pray together. I'm going to invite Nick to come up and lead us. Father, thank you for this day. Lord, thank you that you went through some difficult times. Show us it's, it's possible to survive it. Father, I pray as a church, I pray as a family, as brothers and sisters in Christ, Lord, we become completely reliant upon you so you alone will be glorified. I thank you what you're doing here at Harvest Hill. I thank you what you're doing in the lives of the people here. Father, we love you and you are good, and we thank you for the promise that all things are possible for the one who believes. Thank you for never leaving us or forsaking us, even in the, the valleys and the shadows. But you're always with us. Your rod and your staff, they guide us. Father, I pray in this time as we come to a time of response that we wouldn't just be hearers of your word, but doers. And we would respond to whatever you placed upon our heart. To you alone be glorified in this time. We praise all in the name of Jesus. Amen.